Hey, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. If you need a Bible, just raise a hand and we'll get a Bible to you. Luke chapter 14 is where we are for our Bible study. All right, last week we began a new series here at Young Adults called Disciple. Now, the main purpose of this series is to answer the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Kind of seems like a basic question, but my intention and my goal is, as we dig out some scripture, to see that this question actually is a little bit harder to answer than we may have originally thought. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? And I want us to internalize that question as we are going through scripture. I don't want you to be thinking about other people. I want you to be thinking about yourself, taking uh, somewhat of a litmus test of your own life, answering these questions on your own behalf so that you can discern, you know, am am I a true disciple? Am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? And we watched a a sermon clip of Pastor Andy Stanley last week. He's a pastor in Georgia, a well-known pastor, and he talked about this word disciple. He talked about uh, the term Christian versus the term disciple. And he noted how, and I completely agree, that it has kind of become very easy to hide under the title of Christian, Because Christian nowadays in our culture, it's become very loosely defined. It's become a very broad, general, religious term. I'm a Christian. Because you might ask the average American, uh, what is your religion or your religious upbringing? And they might say, Christian. I'm Christian. And that answer has become very common for a a number of different reasons. Maybe that was their, uh, their religious upbringing. Uh, maybe they went to church as a, as a kid. That was um, what their parents did. They went to church, a Christian church, and so I'm Christian. I identify myself uh, religiously as Christian. Uh, so that term has become so loosely defined and so broadly used that when you use that word Christian, when people ask you maybe a question, do you go to church or what's your religion, and you write on the document Christian or you check that box, um, that doesn't seem to have Uh, much ramification anymore these days. But when you title yourself and label yourself as disciple, that term has much more significance, carries much more weight. And the funny, interesting thing in the clip that Pastor Andy noted was, you know, after this sermon, I'm not going to tell us that we all now have to say we are disciples. You know, what, 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 what religion are you? Well, I'm a disciple. You know, that, he said that would just be uncomfortable. That would be weird, but that's the whole point. That, that term, disciple, when you label yourself as such, it carries much more weight. It has much deeper meaning. And so the question is, you might call yourself Christian, but are you a disciple? And we noted that the very first, most important attribute of a believer in Christ, and and this is the running question I'm going to be having us answer as we go through this study, what should mark us as disciples? What should mark us? What should be the attributes of a true disciple of Jesus Christ? The very first thing we noted last week was love, and specifically love for others. Love for others. What should mark us as believers? Number one, love for specifically love for others. And in John chapter 13, that was our text last week, Jesus said, if you love others as I have loved you, then all will know that you are my disciples. And so the question becomes, you know, number one, love for others, that should mark me as a disciple, but how should we love other people? 
In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, well, you should love other people as I have loved you. Love others as I have loved you. Well, then the obvious question following that is, well, then how did Jesus love? How did Jesus love other people? Because I'll tell you, and you guys know this, that our culture says the way you love other people is by not confronting their behavior, accepting their lifestyle, approving of their lifestyle. That's what our culture says. If you love me, you will approve my behavior. You will accept my lifestyle. That's what our culture preaches. But Jesus, his definition of love was very different. You see, the way Jesus loved others, and we noted a few of these things, was Jesus confronted sin. Now, we have to be careful, as I mentioned last week, when we confront sin, because it's not our job just to flippantly confront people in their sin all the time whenever we see people in error. I mean, Jesus was different in that. Obviously, he was perfect. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, judge not lest you be judged, or I think it's Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, don't be eager to point out people's sin before you're first eager to address the sin in your own heart and in your own life. But a loving thing to do is actually when you see specifically a believer, a fellow believer in Christ, a brother or a sister in Christ who you know knows the word, who you know knows better, the loving and compassionate thing to do is actually point out their error. Now there's tactful ways to do that. There's gracious ways to do that. You know, don't be eager to point out their sin, but you're living a hypocritical life as well. Address your own sin, but a loving thing to do is actually to confront people in their sin when you see them going in error because you don't want to see them continue to do things and live certain ways and, and uh, behave in certain patterns that you know is going to be for their own destruction. A loving thing to do is actually point out their error because you care about them. Hey, I love you as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ. I love you. And I see that what you're doing is actually, you know, an unhealthy thing. And I just want to talk to you about it. Are you doing all right? And can we work on this together? And they might not uh, respond as gracious as you would hope. That confrontation, it might, it might hurt. But Jesus spoke the truth, but he did it in love. This is something we should be careful and cautious about. Don't go just after tonight's service. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you, you know, that's... That's not what we're supposed to do, but if you know someone well enough and you have a relationship with them and you see them in error, it's a compassionate thing to do to come alongside them and just to confront that. Uh, So Jesus confronted sin, that's how he showed love, but he also overwhelmed with grace, we talked about that. Overwhelm people with grace. Don't be so easily offended. Overwhelm them with grace. If someone offends you, give them the benefit of the doubt. If someone gossips about you or talks about you, overwhelm that person with grace. If you um, hurt someone else, you would want them to show grace and compassion to you. Overwhelm people with grace. Jesus did it all throughout the New Testament. We talked about that last week. Serving others. That's how Jesus loved. He washed his disciples' feet. Do you serve other people? Are you others-oriented? Or do you first look at your own needs, look at your own wants? Do you consult the mirror of life? What does Austin feel about this? How can this meet Austin's needs? Or do you look through the lenses of God's glasses and say, what, is, what does this person need? How can I serve this person? That's how we show people love. As a community of young adults within this ministry, I want us to be identified and to be, uh, when people see us as a ministry, I want people to see how we love. I want people to see how we love others. 
This is not a ministry where we gossip about others and talk bad about others and talk down to others. It's a ministry where we come alongside one another, where we love each other so much so where we might point out someone's sin privately with them or we might serve them or we might spend time with them. We might pray with them. We might grab lunch with them. We might cultivate unity with them. I want us to be a ministry that is so grounded and rooted in the love of Christ because love for others is a true mark of a disciple. I was a lengthy intro, but that's where we started last week. We're going to see the second mark of a disciple tonight. I hope you're in Luke chapter 14. If you're in Luke chapter 14, we're going to begin reading in verse 25. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, it says this, Now a great multitude went with him. Pause with me there. Went with who? Well, a great multitude went with Jesus. We're kind of jumping into a story here, just setting up a little bit of context for you. Uh, Jesus is, is just leaving a dinner party. You see that in, in Luke chapter 14. He's just leaving a dinner party, and now he's making his way to the city of Jerusalem. So that's where the people are going with him. They're following him to the city of Jerusalem. It says a great multitude. Now, we don't know how many people that was, um, 20, 30, a couple hundred, a couple thousand It doesn't specify, but Jesus was a very popular person at this time. And so it says in verse 25, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my, here's our word, disciple. Verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Jump to verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, let's pause there and pray and then we'll dig this out a bit. Lord, we come before you tonight and we are eager to dive into your word. Lord, I pray that as we study your word tonight that you would convict us of sin in our own hearts, Lord, that you would encourage us, that we would just have soft hearts before you, just eager to learn and grow closer to you, Lord. And I pray that as we go through this study and this series, that you would really challenge our hearts, Lord, to grow closer to you and to be eager to truly follow after you so that we might answer this question, am I a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Use tonight's Bible study, Lord, to glorify your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So Jesus was the only preacher who made his congregations smaller with his sermons. Uh, he would have big crowds following him, and then he would drop lines like this Hey, if you don't deny your mother or your dad, hey, you can't follow me. And then people would leave. And I find that hilarious. You see that often throughout the Gospels that Jesus, after multitudes of people would follow him, he would then turn and he would speak some hard truth, often confusing truth, and people would just leave. And he, he made his congregation smaller the, the longer he went. Even down to the cross, his 12 denied him and Jesus was left alone. So that's, um, that's not my goal as you know, a pastor and a preacher. Um, I hope you stay and come back, but... If you leave, I'm just being more like Christ, which is, <laughs> brings my heart joy. I'm kidding. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus says very confusing and it seems very harsh words. He says, unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciple. Do you see that in verse 25 or verse 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciple. Then he says in the next verse, verse 27, unless you bear your cross, you can't be my disciple. And then in verse 33, he says, unless you forsake everything, you can't be my disciple. So we're going to focus on the first of those three where he addresses the family and your own life. He says, uh, unless you hate your own life and unless you hate your your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your wife, and your own children, you cannot be my disciple. So what is Jesus talking about here? Because he seems to be contradicting himself because last week we saw Jesus said, listen, unless you love one another, you can't be my disciple. And then he comes here in Luke uh, chapter 14. He says, listen, unless you hate everybody, even your own family, you can't be my disciple. So what is going on here? What is Jesus saying? Now, am I really saying that you have to hate your family, uh, hate your wife, hate your kids, um, hate your mom, your dad? Uh, and, and if you don't hate your mom or dad, you, know, you can't be Jesus' disciple? Of course not. I'm not saying that. But the Bible is. And Jesus says here, I don't, I, the Bible says a lot of stuff. And I just go along, okay, the Bible says this, you know, just the messenger. So Jesus says here, unless you hate your family, unless you hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. Listen, Jesus often used extreme figurative language to communicate a deeper principle. Jesus did this often. He often used, and I want you to catch this, he often used extreme figurative language to communicate a deeper principle. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, he did it often, and John chapter 6, if you're taking notes, is a great example. You know this story. In John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh, and unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then people were offended by this, as Jesus often did. He offended people. And people were offended by this, and it says that many of his disciples, not his intimate 12, but his disciples at large, many of his disciples, they left. They said, who can understand this teaching? This is a hard teaching to grasp. You really want us to, are you promoting cannibalism? You really want us to drink your blood, eat your flesh? What does this mean? And then Jesus turns to his disciples, his more intimate 12, and he says, do you want to leave me too? And as Peter speaks up and he says, where, where would we go? We, we, we don't have any place to go. And then how do we know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here? How do we know that Jesus is speaking figuratively? Well, because in the following verses, he turns to his disciples in that same setting and he says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus wasn't speaking literally, obviously. He was speaking metaphorically. His point was, unless you feed on me, spiritually speaking, Unless you feed on my flesh and my blood, the very things that will bring your atonement for salvation, unless you look to the cross and my sacrifice, you have no eternal life in you. So Jesus is speaking figuratively here. He's saying, unless uh, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
You have no life in you. And he's, he's obviously speaking metaphorically. It's for the hungry and thirsty soul. Jesus uses extreme figurative language here. Another example is in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, Jesus says, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, I want you to cut it off and cast it away. And again, many people said, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And they left because it was too hard of a teaching. Now, Jesus was also speaking metaphorically. And sadly, you can actually read in church church history that some actually took it literally and mutilated themselves in mistaken efforts to pursue holiness. Now, the trouble with a literal interpretation is that it doesn't go far enough because even if you were to gouge out your eye, cut off your limbs, listen, you can still clearly sin within your heart and within your mind. Jesus wasn't speaking literally. A great Bible scholar, he said this, mutilation will not serve the purpose. It may prevent the outward act, but it will not extinguish desire. Jesus simply stressed the point that one must be willing to sacrifice to be obedient. If a part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die rather than to condemn our whole life. So obviously, if this were to be taken literally, Matthew chapter 5, we'd all be walking around blind and, and with our limbs cut off. All right, how, you know, can you imagine the world of Christians and Christianity uh, with, with, you know, that obviously Jesus isn't speaking literally here. He again is using extreme figurative language to drive home a spiritual principle. And he often did this. And here in Luke chapter 14, 26, it's no different. So what is Jesus trying to communicate? What is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ? It's supreme devotion to Jesus. When he says, unless you hate your mom or dad, unless you hate your wife and kids, unless you hate your brother or your sister, you are not my disciple. He's speaking this this extreme figurative language to drive home the point that you need to be supremely devoted to me. He's speaking in comparative terms. He's speaking in the comparative sense. Unless your love for God is so high and so deep and so intimate and so long that your love and devotion to God far outweighs the love that you have for anyone or anything else, you are not my disciple. He's speaking in the comparative sense. I remember when I was five years old and I first heard this, my brother Tyler actually told me, you know, we're supposed to love God more than we love mom and dad. Just rocked my world. But I love mom and dad. This is impossible. And the more I read this and the more obviously I spent time in his word, he's speaking in this metaphorical, extreme figurative language to drive home the point, listen, you need more than anything else and more than anyone else, more than any relationship, more than any tie to mom or dad, more than any uh, love romantic relationship that you might experience with your wife or with your family or with your friends, with your siblings, that just intimate, strong bond of a friendship and a relationship, unless your supreme devotion and love to the Lord far outweighs that, you will not know what it means to truly live after the Lord. So he's speaking in this extreme language, once again, like we saw in John 6, Matthew chapter 5, to drive home a spiritual principle. 
And this one is what marks a disciple's supreme devotion to the Lord. Jesus used the strong word hate to show how great the difference must be between our allegiance to Jesus and our allegiance to everyone and everything else. But listen, is this still a hard, challenging teaching? Yeah. You better believe it is. You mean I have to be supremely devoted to the Lord? My allegiance supremely to His above even my dad's, above even my own wife, my own family? Even in the figurative, metaphorical sense, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching. And Jesus says, He's calling us to supreme devotion. Um, Have any of you been to Niagara Falls before? I probably went, um, I think when I was 11 or 12 years old. It's an awesome place. You should definitely go check it out. But there's actually, um, there's a lot of history at Niagara Falls. And I remember hearing of a cool story. Um, His name was Jean-Francois Gravelier. uh, And he was called the Great Blondine. And he trained in the European circus, and then when he was old enough, uh, old enough um, he, was a, he was a tightrope walker. That was his, that was his uh, main attraction. And so uh, after training some years in the European circus, um, in uh, the year 1859, on June the 30th, um, he announced to the world uh, that he was going to be crossing the gorge of Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And he attempted this multiple times, was very successful. And even stories like he cooked an omelet as he was walking across the tightrope, um, would do backflips across the tightrope. I mean, extreme, extreme stunts here. And there was one particular moment where Jean-Francois, he yelled out to the crowd, who believes that I can push this wheelbarrow across uh, this tightrope, across the gorge of the Niagara Falls? And the crowd was all into it. The crowd was shouting, we believe, we believe. And he was pumping the crowd up, you know, as any uh, good entertainer does. And he asked him again, who believes I can push this wheelbarrow across uh, the tightrope of the gorge of Niagara Falls? And the, sh- the, the crowd went wild. Again, they were chanting, we believe. And one man shouted uh, even louder. And he said, and just kind of outweighed, um, far outweighed the cries of the crowd. And he says, I believe you can. And so Jean-Francois brilliantly looks to the man and he says, well, then get in. The man disappeared. But when I heard that story and as I was kind of just in prep time, the Lord just ministering to my heart and he's speaking to my own heart within this series as well. I don't want you to believe for a moment that I have down pat what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He's speaking to my own heart in this moment as I'm reviewing this story in my mind. Austin, you say you believe in me, but are you willing to get in? So I pose the same question to you. Many people put the title Christian over their lives. I believe in Jesus. You might be able to say that, but the true confidence will show when you jump in and trust God with your life. So much so that that man who shouted, I believe, in James, in the book of James in chapter 5, he says, I will show you my faith by what I do. 
If you truly have faith in the plan and purposes of God, if you truly want to follow Jesus Christ and be his disciple, are you willing to get in on the plan and purposes of God no matter the consequences? Because any one of us can say, we believe, I believe, but the true test of your faith will show when you are able to say, Lord, I trust you so much that I will jump in and trust you with my life. Are you, figuratively speaking, able to get into God's wheelbarrow, that you trust Him, no matter the consequences? Because many Christians believe that just accepting Jesus means you just, you just add Him to your life. I accepted Jesus, I gave my life to Jesus, and you're just bringing Jesus in and adding Him to your life. Jesus doesn't want to be added to your life. He wants to take over your life. Are you willing to give him that supreme devotion, that supreme allegiance, where you are just jumping in, trusting the Lord with your life, no matter what season you're in, in a season of singleness, in a season of good relationship, in a season where you're looking for work, in a season where you have good work, in any season, whatever that might be, are you willing to just jump in totally as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ to say, Jesus, no matter where you take me, no matter how you challenge me, no matter how you push me, no matter where you go, I not only say I believe, but I will trust you with my life. I'm in this. I'm a true follower of you. And when you make Christ first, everything else is better. So tonight, is he your first? Is he first in your life? Have you given him your supreme devotion, your time, your attention, your allegiance? Or have you given that allegiance and devotion and that time to other things? I have. Someone once said, The greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good, such as love and family relationships. The greatest threat to the best often comes from second best. And I've said this before, when we make good things, God things, it will ruin everything. When we make good things in our lives, relationships, not a bad thing, good thing, Um, marriage, wonderful thing, Um, work, career, wonderful things. But when we make those good things, God things in our life, and they get our supreme devotion and allegiance and time and attention, it will be the very thing that ruins everything in your life. But when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, as Jesus says, all these will be added unto you. Seek the Lord. When you make Christ the very first thing in your life, everything goes better. And so here are just some quick questions. I'm not going to tell you you what to do specifically because the fine line when a pastor or someone teaching the Bible, when he gives you um, a set of, here's what to do now it sometimes becomes legalistic where we chase after those rules or those things. So instead, I'm going to pose you some questions to answer. Do I have my full allegiance? Am I supremely devoted to the Lord? Here are a couple questions. The first question is, am I compromising biblical standards and values to fit in? When we go through these questions and when we internally answer these questions, it will be very telling as to who or what has our supreme devotion. Am I compromising biblical standards and values just to fit in? 
Because when we compromise on our own biblical standards and our values to fit in, it shows that our allegiance is more for other people, more so than it is for the Lord. So am I compromising biblical standards and values to fit in? Here's a a second question here. Do I spend more time obsessing over other relationships than I do my relationship with Christ? This is a challenging question, and it might not immediately... uh, prompt us to think of those relationships in our lives. When we really uh, take a test of our own hearts and our own minds, you might come to a different conclusion. Yeah, I've I've been really obsessing over this relationship. Or maybe you're not even in a relationship, but you want to be in a relationship, and you're obsessing over just that concept, and it has caused you you to spend all your time, all your energy, all your devotion, all your worry, all your thoughts to be strictly on that. So am I obsessing over other relationships than I do my relationship with Christ? Again, if you set and seek your, uh, set your face uh, and, and set your eyes on Christ and that relationship, the Lord is going to take care of your other relationships. Be supremely devoted to the main relationship. He's going to take care of your other relationships. Here's another question. Do I care more about what others think of me than what Christ thinks of me? Because when you care about what others think of you more than what God thinks of you, it shows that your allegiance is, again, to other people. And this is a challenging one for me. I can tend to be a people pleaser more so than I am a God pleaser. God fully wants us to be focused on pleasing Him. And when we are focused on pleasing Him, again, He's going to take care of our horizontal relationships. Get the vertical relationship right. He'll take care of the horizontal relationships. I want you to answer that question when you go home in your quiet time. Do I truly care about what God thinks of me or am I more obsessed with, with what other people think about me? Last question, do I spend countless hours doing other things when I could spend that time with God? Someone say Instagram. I heard people whisper it. I don't know what it might be in your life, but I know in my own life, man, I've spent countless hours being devoted to things at the end of the day where I'm like, man, I wasted hours doing nothing. Do I spend countless hours doing other things when I could spend that time with the Lord? Now again, this isn't a set of legalistic rules, but rather a set of questions for us to ask ourselves And when we are truly honest with ourselves, be honest with yourself, and it will point to and be very telling, where is my devotion? Where is my time? Where is my energy? Where are my thoughts? Where is my worry all focused on? Or am I supremely devoted to the Lord? The Lord is calling you tonight. I want your allegiance. I want your love. I want your time. I want your energy. I want your thoughts consumed and fixed on me. Why? Because there's no one on this earth who loves you more than Jesus does. There's no one on this earth who cares for you more than Jesus does. There's no one on this earth who wants better for you in this life and in the life to come than Jesus does. Give your devotion and all of your person and your being to the love of Jesus Christ. And when you are supremely devoted to Him, I promise you, it will go much better for you here with your relationships, with your work, with everything else that you're consumed and worried about. The Lord will take care of if you give it to Him and give yourself to Him. 
A true disciple of Jesus Christ gives him supreme devotion. Supreme devotion. I want us to just go to the Lord right now in prayer. And I want us now, if, if, uh, if this just ministered to your heart tonight, you've been, you've been obsessing over other things or other places or other people more than you have with the Lord. You haven't been supremely devoted to the Lord because you've been so consumed with other things, other people, other places. Then I just want you to take this time right now. I just want you to get your heart right with the Lord tonight. Use tonight as, as a night where you just say, Lord, I repent of, of those things, Lord. I turn from being supremely devoted to those other things. I, I turn from giving my full allegiance to other people. Lord, I want to be supremely devoted to you. I want to be a full, all-out disciple of Jesus Christ. And other things have taken my time. Other people have taken my devotion. And I want you just right now, just you, between you and the Lord, just whisper to Him, Lord, I want to be supremely devoted to you. And the beautiful thing is when, you, when your heart is set on being supremely devoted to the Lord, The Lord doesn't allow us to do this in our own strength, but he says that his Holy Spirit, he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, to empower us, to live a life life of holiness, to live a life of devotion to him. Take this time now, just between you and the Lord, just, just pray and just ask him. Just call on him and just give him all of who you are. Lord, that's our heart tonight. That's our heart's desire, Lord. We want to be supremely devoted to you, Lord. Forgive us when we have put other people or other things on the throne of our lives. And right now, God, we just, we just ask that you would help us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill us, Lord, that we might live lives of supreme devotion to you, Lord. Our love and our devotion, our, our attention, our thoughts are all fixed on you, God. I pray that you would help us, Lord. This is our heart, Lord. Hear our cry. I pray that there might even not have been things tonight that popped into our heads, but I pray that as we go about our week, Lord, that you would just bring bring things to the forefront of our minds, Lord, that we have given our devotion to other than you, that we might just turn from that, repent of it, and just give it to you, God, and just be supremely devoted to to you, Lord, that we wouldn't just say we're Christians, but we would be able to confidently proclaim we're disciples. I not only believe in Jesus, but I am all in as a follower of Christ. Wherever I go, people might see the love that I have for them, and people might see my supreme devotion for you, God, that I wouldn't compromise my standards, that I wouldn't compromise on truth, that I would be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Go where you call me, Go wherever you lead me. Talk to whomever you want me to speak to, Lord, because I'm all in for you, Lord. Challenge me. Encourage me. Convict me. Comfort me, Lord. That's our heart's desire. That's our prayer tonight, Lord, that we would give you our all, that we would be all in as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.